0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Ideas Matter podcast. We're back, baby. Yeah, we had a few weeks off because of coronavirus and we thought we were going to get out of it, but it's still going. So we're recording today over the internet. So I apologize if our sound quality doesn't sound as good as the previous two episodes. Um, Hopefully we can be back in the studio.
1: We got booted out of our professional setup.
0: Yeah, all all by the fake virus, man. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's a joke Andrews wants to put us down yeah he doesn't yeah. want to,
0: he doesn't want any messages getting out Dan Andrews doesn't think ideas matter <laughs> that's a joke for all people listening who you know guess <laughs> my political persuasions aren't obvious but um, today we are doing well the book's called On Ideology by Louis Althusser, but really we're reading an essay in the book and the essay is called Ideology and ideological state apparatuses. Catchy title, yeah, a very catchy title. Yeah, <laughs> all it was missing was like on concerning ideology and ideological <laughs> state apparatuses.
1: It's actually even oh, more dry. On my version, uh, the subtitle is "Notes Towards an Investigation." Oh, really? I like that. These these Frenchmen know how to keep it spicy.
0: An investigation concerning. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, you had actually already read this. Um, so did you want to begin briefly about, you know, why Why had you read this? Obs- well, he's not really obscure, but why had you read this French Marxist philosopher before?
1: Well, it's twofold. Um, on the one hand, Slavoj Žižek, uh, a philosopher I'm sure a lot of you listening are familiar with, uses uh, Althusser's notion or ideology Uh, very extensively in his own work. You know, there's a lot of memes about Zizek talking and ranting about ideology. So if you're familiar with Zizek, I feel like a lot of these ideas will already be kind of familiar to you, but I think it's very useful to spell it out anyways. Um, And secondly, he gets talked about a bit, not too much, but a bit uh, within educational theory um, and, you know, like teaching academia because in this book, in, that book, sorry. in this essay, he states that one of the strongest kind of ideological forces in society is education. Uh, and he gives kind of this broad abstract theoretical outline of how that functions. So I am studying uh, secondary teaching at the moment and I wanted to put in something interesting into my essay and I remembered Al-Dazir, Zizek, ideology, I want to give that a go. And I read through it and I found it very interesting. It's definitely very interesting. Um, I suppose
0: the broader historical context to why he's writing what he's writing is, for those of you broadly familiar with Marx in a crude sense, you know, he um, basically predicts that because of the contradictions of capitalism, i.e. workers are exploited, they're alienated, these contradictions will eventually erupt in the form of a socialist revolution. Mm. Um, And if you understand Marx's theory of history, that's going to happen in places where capitalism is most fully developed. So people thought, including Marx, that the first country to have a socialist revolution would be Germany and then Britain. Uh, But that didn't happen. It happened in Russia, which was not a very well-developed capitalist economy. And then, of course, it didn't happen. Um, in places like the UK, Germany, France, America. So in the 20th century, you have a lot of academics and intellectuals who are sympathetic to Marx, but they're basically trying to answer the question, well, why did his prediction not come true? Why was there not a workers' revolution in basically the West? Um, So you have a lot of thinkers turning towards non-material forces because Marx is a materialist trying to explain why this revolution never took place.
1: Just a kind of a historical aside, there were attempts at a revolution in Germany, like right at the end of World War I, um, but they got put down pretty hard. Uh, But it looked like things were really popping off for a while. Um, And also, giving a bit more context for the writing of this, um, I started reading the overall book that this is published in, Well, the one you've read is published under another title on ideology, but I think the one I tried reading is on the reproduction of capitalism. And he pretty much was writing it in response, like in the aftermath of the 1968 uh, student movement, uh, like big protest movement in France, where it really looked for a minute like there was going to be a revolution. Uh, You know, you had like hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets, like a general strike, all this kind of stuff that looked very promising. And he wanted to whip something together to give an ideological uh, slip of the tongue there, (laughs) give like a broad theoretical outline of Marxism to uh, kind of act as a guide for people uh, who are newly becoming interested in these ideas in this time of social ferments.
0: Yeah, definitely. When when you said that there was almost a revolution in Germany, that did remind me that, um, you know, a lot of people don't know that the French Communist Party was huge all throughout, massive throughout the 20th century, such that, you know, they actually ended up in cabinet for a while. Um, Mm. I think it was, was it de Gaulle, who ended up doing a parliamentary coalition with the Communist Party, but, you know, quite deliberately sort of kept them out of important portfolios like treasury and that sort of stuff. But Mm. they were so big in the French parliament that they had to be included in government. So they were a huge electoral force for a very long time. And then obviously, as you said, May, uh, May 1968 comes around and people thought that that was actually yeah, going to be a, a revolution.
1: Mm. And uh, it's worth mentioning that Althusser was a very avid member of the French Communist Party. He was kind of like the philosopher-in-chief.
0: <laughs> philosopher-in-chief. I think more political parties need philosophers-in-chiefs.
1: <laughs> no, mate, we have uh, Josh Frydenberg. <laughs> yeah.
0: Quoting, <laughs> quoting Ronald Reagan and and, and Margaret Thatcher, yeah, <laughs> definitely, a, yeah, the chief ideologist of the Liberal Party. Uh, but yeah, as you mentioned before, um, you mentioned the term reproduction of uh, reproduction of the conditions of production. So basically, of,
1: uh, reproduction.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does say that workers have to reproduce themselves as well, right? Yeah Uh, how he even finds a technical way to express that um but basically you know what he's what he's getting at is like okay well why didn't the revolution happen Mm. um because he's saying that capitalism not just capitalism all social systems right uh, reproduce themselves um he calls this like a social formation so don't just think of capitalism as like an economic system think of it more broadly as like encompassing the entire society it's a social formation and social formations tend to reproduce themselves so that the purpose of this essay which i think you mentioned is actually part of a broader book or he makes it into a broader book is looking at that process how does capitalism reproduce itself
1: yeah no spot on Um, and just to start off we're going to go into a little bit of marxist jargon um, yeah, which important. sounds a bit of dense, but it's very important to kind of set the basis uh, for his later discussion. Uh, he says that societies, well, he doesn't just say this, this is a very kind of classical Marxist point. Societies have a dominant mode of production, big term there. So a mode of production is constituted by two different things. The productive forces. So your productive forces are things just like actual human workers, the machinery uh, to produce stuff, tools, infrastructure, raw materials, lands, all those material things that allow for production. And in addition to these productive forces, there are the relations of production. So the relations of production are how people relate to the productive forces and between those productive forces. So like, Think of stuff like law about employment or the relationship between workers, the relationship between workers and owners, the relationship between workers and the things they produce. So productive forces, which is all that material stuff, and the relations of production, which is, well, all the relational stuff, come together to form the mode of production.
0: Yeah. So obviously we're in a capitalist mode of production. Um mm and don't get put off by these terms because as alex has you know pointed out like they do refer to very tangible things particularly the relations of production i always just think of that as like for young people today would be familiar you know having casual employment mm. that's 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 a relation of production you have this very casual precarious relationship with your employer which is a, is, is is a relation to production um, yeah. and is becoming more widespread mm. in, in late stage capitalism
1: or even if uh, you manage to find a full-time job that you start, you're like kind of a newcomer at the position and there's this sort of tacit expectation that you have to work harder, uh, you have to do longer hours, even though it might not be legal. Uh, that's that's an example of like the relation of production.
0: Yeah, spot on. I mean, basically the fact that we live in a capitalist society where, you know, the means of production, the factories, the the machinery, the land is all owned privately in the hands yeah. of capitalists and we as workers have to rock up and basically sell our time, sell our labour. In very, very broad terms, that that is the relations of production that exist under capitalism. Yeah, um, that's right. So, yeah, you get the productive forces plus the relations, you get capitalism. All right, so far so good. But then Althusser says, okay, well, these things need to reproduce themselves in order to basically exist the very next day. And there's a superficial way of thinking about that. And he says, well, yeah, like I used to work in a bakery, you know, a bakery cooks bread every day. Um, but if it has no ingredients the next day, it's not going to be open the next day. Right. So capitalists need to not just produce what they're selling, but actually also be able to reproduce the conditions which enabled them to produce the need to order more raw ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, that extends to the reproduction of labor power. So they need to pay their workers' wages, right? And then those wages then enable the workers to reproduce themselves by eating, sleeping, having shelter, etc. cetera. Um, so that's the sort of material sense in which things reproduce themselves. But he's more interested in the ideological sense. You know, yeah. why why do we turn up to work every single day um, if you accept Marx's premise that we are being exploited and we are alienated, um, we're not being dragged there by police, although that threat is always implicit, you know, if we can't no. pay off our debts. But it functions in a more subtle way. Why do we basically accept these relations of production? Yeah. Um, and to him, that's ideology. So he wants to look at how ideology basically conditions people to accept this this dominant mode of production.
1: Yeah, spot on. And it's here that he starts talking about the state. um, And he distinguishes between two different things that constitute the state and reinforce the state. So there's what he calls the repressive state apparatus. He likes his, his big terms. But the repressive state apparatus is, you know, pretty much those governmental things that operate by like the implicit threat of violence if you don't follow along. So, like the military, police, uh, prisons, that kind of stuff—they're pr- repressive in the sense that they can come down on you, come down on you, and come down hard to ensure that you don't stray too far from the acceptable bounds of the reproduction of this society. So, think of like a workers' movement getting crushed or something like that. Um, and in addition to this repressive one, well, as you were saying, it's—it's it's, it's not just enough that. There's this kind of like cold, hard material operation of power. There has to be something that gets inside people's heads to make them go along with it too. And this is where he brings in what he calls ideological state apparatuses. So there are a number of institutions he points towards that uh, are examples of these ideological state apparatuses. So I think of things like the education system like schools and unis, the legal system, the political system in general, like including political parties, media, so you know, TV, newspapers, radio, um, culture, so literature, art, sports. Um, you also mentioned trade unions, which I know you didn't like that one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, look. Fair enough that he puts them in there. Uh, yeah. Not all trade unions are created equal. Mm-hmm. SDA. <clears throat> <laughs>
1: yeah, I was thinking about name dropping them as well. But <laughs> he, he brings in an important point here, where he says that where the repressive state apparatuses, so like police, military, etc., are entirely governmental, like they're public. ISAs, the ideological state apparatuses, exist as a sort of crossover between public and private. So there are some things that are public, like schools, the legal system, the political system, but also there are a lot of private things that reinforce the ideology of the state. So these are things like, I don't know, independent media, not in, I mean, independent of government media, you know, just general media, um, culture, private schools. So just because something exists privately in a legal sense doesn't mean it, can, it can't operate as an ideological state apparatus. Yeah, I thought he had a
0: really interesting brief technical discussion of that public-private distinction, mm-hmm. which I really liked. He said, well, you know, the, the whole distinction between that which is public, government, the mm-hmm. public service, something, anything owned by the state, versus that which is private, he says, to quote, I think it's a it's a distinction that's internal to bourgeois law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not a natural distinction. It it only exists in a in a capitalist bourgeois legal system. Yeah. And he says, furthermore, that for there to be private property, there needs to be a state um, to basically protect that private property mm. and to give it a legal system to enforce private property rights. Yeah. Um, so even though there's this sort of distinction between that which is private and that which is public, really, uh, in a broader sense, they're all part of this mode of production. They're all part of this broader system. And, and splitting hairs between them is, is really just internal to the system.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, speaking of other things internal to the system, he brings up the fact that all ideological state apparatuses are unified by the same ideology So even though there might be sort of like bickering and some like discrepancies between the views of like individual ideological state apparatuses, think like trade unions bickering with uh, political parties or different media sources bickering with each other or with the political system, they all functionally operate to reinforce the same singular ideology which he classifies the ruling ideology the ideology of the ruling class so that would be the ideology of the capitalists
0: yeah this was the one part where i wanted to push back a little bit not necessarily disagree yeah um but i think it's just it's an interesting thing to discuss where he says yeah there's this unity to ruling class ideology, mm-hmm. um, and I guess that ties in today with with the sentiment that both major parties are the same. We don't really have a choice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is more po- a popular discourse in America with this yeah. idea of left wing media and right wing media, um, but fundamentally they're both just capitalist media. They're both corporate media. They're not really mm-hmm. that different. Um, in a broad sense, I think that's true you know like no no media today corporate media that is that's no matter how progressive it's not really arguing for any sort of systemic change it's not trying to overthrow anything it's still capitalist it still believes in private property and it's broadly status quo and that's what he means by you know ideology is basically serving to perpetuate the status quo but I think I don't know there are also I think, meaningful, dif- I don't know how meaningful they are, but I do think there are interesting distinctions and differences within the quote-unquote ruling class that mm. are interesting. Um, and I don't think he would necessarily disagree with that either because he does talk about contradictions. Yeah. And contradictions tend to play out in the cultural sphere. Um, but I was thinking in America, you know, like you've got Wall Street on the one hand and then you've got Silicon Valley. And they're both elites, no doubt about it. Um, but they do have differences in terms of their policy preferences. Like mm-hmm. neither of them are revolutionary. Neither of them are trying to overthrow capitalism, far from it. Um, but there was this really interesting talk that a guy who I'm going to quote quite frequently, John Mearsheimer, <laughs> he's an <laughs> international relations scholar, but he w- he came to Australia and he was talking about why Australia was so hawkish towards China um, no, sorry, why Australia's business community is not hawkish towards China. And he was like, well, because if you look at the United States, who are the people that are hawkish towards China? It's it's Silicon Valley. It's the people who produce intellectual property who feel that they're losing out with China. So there are these elites that have this policy preference. So California has a hawkish stance towards China, uh, but actually Wall Street just wants to get along with China because you know China buys a lot of their financial products China pumps a lot of money into the US financial system. So they're both elites, but they have differing policy preferences. Uh, And he says, well, the reason why in Australia, your uh, business sector is so uniformly doesn't want to be hawkish on China is because you don't have an advanced manufacturing sector, you sell up minerals and sell them to China, and you have a pretty, you know, decent financial sector. Both of those sectors rely on China. So you don't really have dissent within the business community. Whereas in America, you've got like two different kinds of elites, but ultimately their policy preferences just derive from their material position in, in, in the system. Um, but, yeah, I just wanted to not disagree with the statement there's a unity to ruling class ideology because they're mm. both capitalist, but it is interesting how there can be contradictions within it as well, which I think is something that he would he would agree with.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting point. Like, he, yeah, I I feel like he definitely would agree with the fact that um, different elements uh, of the ruling class can have, you know, opposing views, but I think he'd respond with the idea that they might be opposed on certain things, but they are fundamentally still beneficiaries and want to continue in the same, you know, Socioeconomic structure of capitalism, yes, capitalism with different kinds of winners, but capitalism nonetheless. That's a good way
0: of putting it. Capitalism with a different kind of winner. You know, <laughs> at the moment, it's just the wrong people being oppressed. <laughs> um, I mean, it's like that Joe Biden quote, right, where he met with these donors and he was like, "Nothing will fundamentally change." Yeah, you know, I I don't doubt the sincerity of like Joe Biden and the Democratic Party in their hatred of Trump. Mm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have a different ideology to Trump.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: In, in the sense that Elf is our user's ideology. Yeah. Um, they still want to perpetuate the same system. They're just angry that this guy is the head of it.
1: Yeah, 100%. Just to kind of summarise what we were just talking about in regards to the uh, repressive state apparatus and the ideological state apparatus, we could just sum it up by saying the repressive state apparatus uh, reproduces the relations of production by force whereas the ideological ones reproduce it by thought so forced versus thought um and it's around here that he starts getting into the education system which i love this part this part was so cool to me Uh take
0: it away man so i he he i'll wind you up so he, he says that the uh the biggest, you know, the most effective ideological state apparatus um, in medieval times was the church, mm. and that's kind of that's kind of obvious to anyone who's done even a modicum of history. But in modern times, the most effective ideological state apparatus—that is, the most effective institution at reproducing capitalism—is actually the education system. Yep. So schools. Um, What do you make of that, Alex, as someone (laughs) someone studying to work within this system?
1: I completely agree with it. Um, You can see this especially in the kinds of subjects and, like, the sort of curriculum that's offered uh, to students. Like, people have this idea that, like, oh, like, we need to stop putting ideology, put these social issue ideas into the curriculum, but... The curriculum is and always has been like an ideological product. You know, think of like how many students in VCE, how many schools offer something like business management uh, versus, you know, other subjects that don't necessarily back up the larger ideological structure in a direct sense. I I think the numbers uh, when I last saw them uh, for an assignment I was doing last year the amount of schools that offer VCE business management or accounting uh, for non-Victorian listeners, VCE is pretty much like our senior high school uh, senior high school strand where you do VCE subjects and then you can go into university. The amount of schools that offer VCE business management or accounting are 816 of around about 900 schools in the state. Um, compare that to philosophy. Uh, which is only offered in 94 schools, and you get a sense of the Christ. Yeah, you, you get a real sense of the kind of priorities uh, of the curriculum in reinforcing certain ideological ideas. <laughs>
0: um, well, yeah, I mean, anecdotally, philosophy didn't run at my high school. They, to you know, to his credit, the vice principal tried to get it running because he was going to be the one to take it, um, mm. but he couldn't. He could, I think, he needed 12 students to indicate that they would do it before the school would run it. Um, and he couldn't find 12 students who wanted to do philosophy. But we did we, we, we did run business management. Um, <laughs> we did run accounting. We did run legal studies.
1: Uh-huh. We did run economics. And those are some of the most popular subjects in VCE. Like yeah. if you went to a Victorian school, you probably did one of, if not
0: most of those subjects that you just listed out. <laughs> I mean, I did economics. Mm. S- still liked it, uh, but would have preferred to have done philosophy as well. Yeah. But one of the reasons that you got for why people didn't pick it right as well, how's that going to help me get a job? Yeah. <laughs> Which is basically what el is saying is that like the school is an ideological, um, ideological factory mm. in the sense that it's preparing students to be workers. Yeah. The fact that, that, that yeah. that's its function.
1: The fact that they got to the point where that was a consideration for them at the end of high school like how is learning about philosophy going to help me find work? Yeah. Is like case in points. Like <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's it's
1: it's indicative of his
0: point beautifully yeah. that that they had actually internalized the ideology, hmm. which is something that he's gonna to get to later, that ideology is internalized. Yeah. But and, yeah, they were sort of saying that like the point of education is to help me on the job market.
1: Yeah. And like someone listening to this might respond, like, well, fair enough that they might be concerned about that because that's the world that they're going into and I think we agree with the sentiment but like that that is the case is the issue
0: yes that's true yeah the fact that it the fact that you have to sort of jump through this stifling education system Um, which leaves so many students just thinking that they hate learning. Yeah. I I would say really that they probably don't. They just don't like the system. I mean, I know a lot of people who who sort of discovered after the fact that they didn't hate learning, they just hated school. Mm. Um, But, yeah, it's depressing that that, that schools are structured in such a way where you basically get rote. You have to do rote learning. Mm. Um, You're not really taught to be critical. And even if you are, it's a very, like, circumscribed critical thought.
1: Yeah, Um, exactly. But I really
0: liked what you said earlier at the start where, um, you know, people say, oh, we need to keep ideology out of schools. We just need to teach them the facts. But you made Mm -hmm. the point like, no, this has always been ideological. The curriculum has always been ideological. And that is a really good way of actually describing Althusser's view of ideology is because the sort of normal view of ideology is – Someone actually commented this on the Instagram post: "Ideology is values and ethics, and that's ideology as like this is how I want the world to be." Mm. But Althusser and Zizek and so on says, "No, no, no! Ideology is um, basically implicit. It's 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 everything around you. It's what you take for granted. Yeah. What you what you think as normal. What you accept is ideological. Yeah. So the fact that we think it's normal." that students should study subjects that help them get a job. That is ideological. So these kind of thinkers are pushing back on the idea that we live in a sort of neutral post-ideological age.
1: No. Mm.
0: The ideology is just so pervasive we don't notice it.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's uh, – I want to just finish ranting about education for a bit and then we can get deeper into that. Yeah, yeah. I- ideology as such. But um, he – makes this really uh, good point that education processes all students in it, you know, regardless of their ability into some place in the system. So it's not just that, like, ideology exists for the kids who perhaps weren't as academic, they left school at, like, 16 or maybe they didn't do VCE and they just went, went into, you know, manual work or they got an apprenticeship or something. There's kind of ascending layers of ideological conditioning, ideological points within the system. So maybe if you're the kind of kid who, you know, you finished VCE but you weren't, you're not all that academic but, you know, you still go to uni, you might end up as like, I don't know, like a white-collar worker or something and you go a bit higher up and you go to like – kind of, I don't know, petty bourgeois. You might be a business owner or something. And you go higher and higher to what he calls the agents of exploitation. So that's the capitalists, you know, executives, CEOs. That's the highest point. The people who have been conditioned, even though they're very good academically, it doesn't mean that they're outside of ideology. They have been funneled through ideology to the top. And there's also what he calls the agents of repression. So this is like military heads, police heads, uh, political figures, uh, people high up in government bureaucracies. And my favourite, what he calls professional ideologists or the high priests of ideology. So this is stuff like, I don't know, like economists or academics and stuff like that. I just love, I love the term high priest of ideology. It's so cool.
0: (laughs) I think one of my uh, favourite genres of of philosophy and academia is when everyone unites to pay out on professional economists <laughs> for just how sort of reflexive and bad they are at yeah. understanding the society that they're trying to analyse because their tools are so steeped in ideological assumptions. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they really are, yeah, the high priests of ideology. Um, you can, you know go and do your master's degree in econometrics or applied macroeconomics or microeconomics and i don't know end up working somewhere like treasury or the grattan mm. institute not to pay out in the grattan institute but and then just produce these like policy proposals um where basically all you ever say is like oh no we shouldn't we shouldn't do this healthcare policy that's going to save lives because you know the return on every dollar is so small <laughs> like that's the con- contribution that they make to society, this kind of econometric analysis that is just like the definition of ideology itself. It mm. it, it thinks it's being neutral and objective, but it's actually using a framework that it is unaware of to analyse
1: society. Mm, for sure. Uh, I just have one last thing to say about education. Uh, there... I like how you mentioned before uh, a lot of uh, content uh, in schools is just presented as kind of like a rote learning and you, you, there's no criticality developed in students, or if there is, it's very shallow or it's it's kind of, it's with with blinders on. Um, there makes the point, and this is something I notice a lot in teaching as well, that The vast majority of teachers don't actually know the true nature of the work they do. Like most of them don't know their role in perpetuating ideology. They just see the curriculum as kind of a given that they continue on with. But on top of that, a lot of the most passionate teachers, a lot of the ones who go into head teaching positions, they get to that point not through actual concern about the content as such, not through concern about the nature of the ideology they're feeding students, but they focus on new teaching methods. So you say mm-hmm. rote learning, but a lot of the really passionate teachers reinforce ideology not through teaching different content but through finding new and more exciting ways of ideological indoctrination pretty much. <laughs> wow. You're,
0: so. That's so interesting.
1: You see this a lot with like the – you just spend like any time talking to teachers or like looking at kind of like teaching resources and there's so much about teaching methods. You know, in Victoria we have these high-impact teaching strategies and we spend fucking like pretty much almost every subject in any kind of uni course on teaching nowadays just hammering home different teaching methods and no one ever actually talks about content or like the role <laughs> of you as a teacher in the broader social system or the implications of that and i think that's just ideology par excellence
0: <laughs> that really is ideology par excellence it's like wow we're giving kids this medicine that tastes like shit and no one wants to no one wants to take it you know maybe we should give them something else why are student grades going down and down and down i mean i think in victoria like more than 50% of 15-year-old boys are below the reading requirement now yeah we um, yeah it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse but instead of saying okay well maybe what we're teaching them is not that engaging maybe it doesn't you know gel with the natural curiosity of like the child mind maybe we're boring them no 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 we just need to find better ways to to sort of get this shit medicine into them mm. just just put some sugar on the pill yeah
1: no it's it's depressing no it is it is absolutely depressing um so i feel like that's all the ranting i wanted to do about education out the way um now at this point he starts talking about ideology as such so like moving away from ideological state apparatuses the different ways that ideology is given to people in a society but how does ideology in a general sense, function, like what is its nature?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I sort of started talking about that that before when I was mentioning sort of the ubiquity, mm. the pervasiveness of ideology. Um, so in preparation for uploading this episode, I put up a post on Instagram of, of the book and one of the questions I posed was what is ideology? And I thought it was really, really interesting that someone commented um ideology is basically your values, and that's underpinned by ethics. Mm. And that's certainly what I was taught ideology was in Year 12 politics, first year uni politics and so on. It's an ism, right? Socialism, liberalism, Mm. conservatism. This is how I think society should be. That's my ideology. And today when you hear people saying, oh, stop being so ideological, that's usually what they mean by ideology. Mm -hmm. Um, that's not how Marx meant ideology and it's certainly not how Althusser means ideology. Basically, to them, ideology is, look, we really just need to play the Zizek clip of him putting on the glasses and taking off the glasses, (laughs) right? Um, Ideology, people think ideology is something that distorts your view. Like Mm -hmm. there's there's a way things really are but I can't see it that way because I'm such a committed socialist. I distort reality through my socialist glasses. That's the common view of ideology. Mm. But what Elthuzer and Zizek and Marx are saying is no, 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 no. Um, Actually, the ideology is in in the very way that you see reality. Mm. Um, You can't escape it. And actually, if you were to put on the glasses then you would see reality as it was, Mm -hmm. right? It's not that you're imposing... It's not that there is this objective way of of looking at things and you're just distorting it. Um, No. Ideology is sort of this shared collective illusion. Mm -hmm. I mean, Althusser uses the word illusion. He says ideology is um, people's imaginary relation to their real conditions.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. And and it's 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 hardwired. Well, it's not hardwired, but like it's it's socially conditioned into us. It's it's internalized such that it becomes so commonplace, our sort of default way of looking at the world that we don't even realize that it is ideology. Yeah, like, that's yeah. ideology to to these sort of people.
1: Yeah, no, very well put. Yeah. Those in ideology, which is everyone, like out there, says like no one. You, escapes ideology, you might go to a different point in it, but everybody lives and acts and thinks within ideology. and But everybody in ideology believe themselves by definition to be outside of it. Like it's a naturalizing force. Mm. He, he has this quote, ideology never says I am ideological. So, yeah, like you said, like people use ideological as an insult, as a criticism of others. They'll say, you're being ideological, but never themselves.
0: No, of course not. Um, You know, the enlightened folk who are not ideological are just chilling at the end of history, (laughs) right? Uh, So to explain that reference, right, um, this political theorist, I suppose, uh, Francis Fukuyama wrote in the 90s as the Cold War was ending um, that we were going to live in the end of history. And uh, he's, you know, notoriously misrepresented that what he meant by that was there aren't going to be any more events. Of course, he never meant that. What he meant was that, like, humankind's ideological struggle, the struggle over what is the best political social system, and in the 20th century, that was capitalism v, the Soviet interpretation of communism. That ideological struggle had ended. There were no other competitors on the horizon, all you had left was liberal capitalist democracy. So when he said end of history, what he meant was that we had discovered the final form of human government. And final form of human government is the phrase that he used. Um, And that is ideology par excellence. Like Mm -hmm. that is exactly what Althusser means by ideology because this is a guy who thinks that he is being post-ideological in saying, well, the way that we do things... Is the best possible way mm. because it somehow is congruent with an underlying human nature or an underlying way things actually are. I mean, you always hear capitalists say this, right? That the free market works because it gels with human nature. Yeah. Right. We're not ideological. Actually, we know how things really are. Mm. But but you just that is ideology manifest. Thinking that your way of looking at the world is objective is hundred
1: yeah, he, he says that ideology frames reality, um, which I think is just a completely great way of putting it. Um, and also like you were talking about how ideology has a way of making people feel that the way we currently live and think just works with human nature. Um, Althusser says that uh, ideology creates an big big word here omni-historical reality so ideology creates a way of thinking about the world that exists has always existed and will always exist like ideology to people who live in it is like an eternal truth of the world i think of people who support capitalism and they go people have been like buying and selling stuff for like all of history that's completely natural that you know we're just living as people always have like we've always been at war with Eurasia <laughs> <laughs> to
0: to quote George Orwell but no that makes sense the way that you just described it because I didn't I didn't get that part of the book initially I was like well, what, what does he mean that ideology has no history ideology is omnipresent it's eternal in the same way he starts mentioning Freud and my eyes glazed over <laughs> um, but that makes a lot of sense and particularly the example you just gave of like yeah how do capitalists defend capitalism? They say, well, it's natural. It's always existed. If you were to plonk yourself in ancient Egypt, you'd find proto-free markets, right? it, it It's not ideology. It's just the way things really are. Um, and that is a mode of thinking that, that says how deep you are in ideology when you mm-hmm. think it's this eternal, eternal way of being.
1: Yeah, for sure. And he has this... A uh, very complicated-sounding phrase uh, that I thought was very pivotal to his argument about ideology. Um, ideology is a representation of the imaginary relationship of individuals to their real conditions of existence. Mm. And what, do you think, what I think he means by this is that imaginary relationship of individuals to their real conditions of existence uh, think about like you were talking about right at the beginning, the casual worker. How ideology would frame the kind of existence of the casual worker is that you're kind of like you're an entrepreneur who freely chooses between like flexible working arrangements. You have freedom in the system and you're exercising your freedom by choosing different employers at will with no uh, kind of no baggage or no duties between you or the employer, whereas the reality of the situation is you are a completely precarious casual worker who is always on the edge of not being able to survive anymore.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like the imaginary. There's a perfect example, right? The, The imaginary condition is, oh, how lucky am I? I have this casual job I don't know when my shifts are going to be next week. <laughs> that's, that's amazing because I can fit my university around my casual work. You know, that's how it's always sold. You know, mm. casual work is good for students. I don't get sick leave. How amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the real condition is, as you said, no, you're incredibly precarious. Uh, you can be fired on an instance notice. Um, you haven't got sick leave. You haven't got annual leave. And, mm. um, and, yeah, I don't know where my shifts are going to be next week, so how do I know what I'm going to study?
1: Yeah.
0: Right? Um, my real condition actually sucks. Mm. But there's this ideology of, like, oh, isn't it great that, um, you know, we can be so flexible today? We have mm. flexible workplaces. Yeah.
1: No, it sucks. <laughs> no, for sure. And something that really comes to mind for me around this part of uh, Althusser's discussion of ideology is the idea of, like, like mindfulness, the mindfulness movement and like positive psychology. Uh, Like this idea that like you can keep your work at a complete remove from your emotional life and you can create this insulation between self and the world around you and live and think in a way that makes you at harmony with your conditions, even though they might in an objective sense be horrible. And this, you know, mindfulness and like positive psychology, they get framed as, or this is like a completely objective scientific way of looking at the world. We're just like discovering new ways that the brain work, but the functions to which those things are put is completely ideological. Like the fact that so many businesses, you know, you see like all these kind of like corporate materials and like advertisements about oh, the importance of, mindfulness and keeping a positive mindset it's that that wouldn't be getting you <laughs> pushed by any corporations it wouldn't be getting adopted by anyone if it didn't work in perpetuating a system
0: yeah i mean all right corporations actually have a legal responsibility to to make profit
1: mm.
0: right it's in it's in the law um so they're not going to do anything that doesn't help them make a profit. Yeah, and. So, you know, when you see them promoting mindfulness and all this sort of stuff, it's always for ulterior motives. It's for Mm -hmm. cynical purposes. And I have nothing against mindfulness. I think it's Mm -hmm. fantastic. I think a lot of these Eastern practices are really, really insightful about the human condition. But what our system does to them is it takes them, it bastardises them, commodifies them, and then repackages them as ways to be a more productive worker. And what is so fascinating about that is it is literally what Marx predicted would happen. And I have to read this quote from Marx about capital. So Marx said, It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervour, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of philistine sentimentalism, in the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value. So, everything becomes subordinated to the logic of capitalism which is the profit motive
1: that's i love that quote that's phenomenal and that's yeah completely the case with things like mindfulness you know i 100% agree with you you know these are it's a phenomenal idea it's incredibly helpful if you apply it to your own life but the fact that this you know say something like meditation which was a deeply spiritual practice in the places where it comes from, gets completely commodified into a way of perpetuating a worker being able to handle their conditions is a function of this system we live in. It's not accidental that it got mm. adopted like that.
0: Yeah, everything is going to be sort of filtered through the existing system mm. and you're going to get a form of it which which perpetuates the system. You're not going to... If it, if it threatened the system then it, then it wouldn't be accepted yeah it, it would be seen as um pernicious and it you, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be promoted
1: exactly yeah and even things that in appearance threaten the system gets turned by the system into something that reinforces itself so i don't know think like che guevara t-shirts <laughs> yeah
0: yeah i mean this is again like um when Zizek talks about, you know, the film Wally. Mm. right? This, like, pretty good film about Life sort Wally. of, ca-
1: yeah, it's a good
0: film. It's about capitalist dystopia where people have become basically just mind-dead, brain-dead, stupid. They, like, exist permanently on this reclining couch with a screen in front of them, mm. and they're not even looking at reality. They're just looking at this screen, obviously riffing on smartphones, right? Mm. Um, They're all obese. They can't walk properly. Um, Everything is instantaneous. They get food brought to them. Uh, You know, it's it's, it's like our current society taken to an absurd conclusion. Uh, And they're existing on this spaceship Mm. um, because the earth is uninhabitable because of environmental destruction. Right. So you think, wow, um, what an amazing, incisive critique of capitalism. Um, But how do you engage in that critique? you go and you buy, you consume a movie ticket and you sit there eating your popcorn and drinking your soft drink like the characters in the film and then you leave and you you know have a five, ten-minute discussion about what a good critique that was and then you sleep easy that night because you feel like you've you know criticised the system. Mm. But what has happened is that the resistance to the system has become commodified and incorporated into the system so that you can go and feel like an anti-capitalist. Without actually doing anything that threatens capitalism,
1: one hundred percent. And Zizek has many great examples in a similar vein, like the idea of I don't know buying like organic food or like getting getting that water where you, when you buy the water, it says on the back, like it says on the label, uh, every purchase of this water uh, donates one dollar to uh, Children Without Water in so-and-so country and Mm. it's your consumption is turns into this people's i'll I'll rephrase that people's instincts towards making a better world gets turns into a form of consumption that reinforces that same system
0: yeah absolutely because you can easily conceive of a situation where like, yeah, you buy a bottle of water, right. Mm. And every dollar from that, from that sale goes towards, I don't know, a village in Africa that doesn't have clean drinking water, Yeah. but it's equally as believable that the reason why they don't have clean drinking water is because the same, that the plastics company that produces those water bottles has polluted their river. Exactly. Like that is the irony of, of the situation. Yeah. <laughs> It's probably not that far from the truth. I'm sure there's something exactly like that.
1: I would not be surprised one bit. Um, but I feel like uh, there's still a bit more in terms of Althusser's uh, theorization of ideology.
0: Yeah, I think we should we should talk about how um, this is what you were going to bring up the interpolation of subjects. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. All right. Cool. So
1: by uh, per Althusser ideology turns individuals into subjects. Now, subject is kind of like a philosophically loaded term, um, but in terms of how he uses it, think of subject in terms of like a feudal lord and his subjects. You are turned from an individual who have your own kind of like inner experience, you have your own sort of life independent uh, of the system you live in, supposedly, and you get conditions into being a subject of that system that reinforces that system. As he says it, uh, there is no practice except by and in an ideology and there is no ideology except by the subjects and for subjects.
0: Yeah, so he, he says that basically ideology functions to interpolates individuals as subjects and really what that means is that it like turns individuals into subjects in in the way that you that you just said mm. um, and he gives this example of like someone walking down the street and a police officer is like hey you um, and you turn around and you acknowledge that the, the police officer is talking to you and so really what he's trying to get at is like in that moment in that instant, you have recognized yourself as someone who is subject to the police officer's power.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I, I love this example so much. <laughs> it, it really like goes down to the essence of it. Like, in this 180 degree turn of you walking forward, you hear, hey, you, you turn around, you see the cop talking to you, you turn in that 180 degrees from an individual into a subject.
0: Yeah. And this took me a while to grasp because I was just getting hung up on like the use of the term subject mm. um, very, because very usually, very
1: yeah
0: because usually subject sort of has more positive connotations right mm. like e- humans acting as subjects rather than objects it's mm. when you say a human is a subject you usually mean that they're uh, exercising their agency um, but he's he's using it in like subject is, is in subjugation mm. uh, you are subjected to something. And so you recognise the authority that you are subject to in this moment. Um, and that's just an example, but there are plenty of examples. I mean, like we're in lockdown right now um, and it would be so easy for me to, to, to break those lockdown rules. And I'm not going to, uh, I don't want to, um, but I'm sort of implicitly, tacitly accepting the governing ideology. And by that, I mean the ideology of like, you should follow the law and you should do what the government says mm. because they're trying to protect you. Now, in this particular instance, I happen to agree with that, but like that is an example of how ideology functions to health is there. Mm. I am, in my
1: actions, living it. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great example of COVID. Um, and he has this point as well, uh, going back to the idea of like, ideology being omni-historical. So ideology exists, has always existed, and will always exist. People as ideological subjects are also the same as that. Like you and I, everybody listening to this, are always already subjects. So within the framework of ideology, there was no point before... You going processed, you getting processed through ideological state apparatuses. There is no point in which you existed outside of ideology when you were a newborn or something. You have always been in the system per ideology. It's very matrix esque. Yeah, like you
0: just can't escape
1: it. Yeah, um, it's. I found like the experience of reading this, like taking this idea of ideology seriously. It's like you're getting more and more constricted by like a boa constrictor the further you read into this. And he's like, these are things how like, these are like how ideology gets, you know, put into society. And this is what it's kind of like. And at the end, it's like, you're in it, you're always in it. And then you like, you can't be out of it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's sort of like Max Weber's idea of like the iron cage. Mm. I mean, like the iron cage can be huge. Such that you never see its limits. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're not in a cage.
1: Mm.
0: Right? Um, sort of sort of similar to that. Apparently, this idea got taken up by Judith Butler as well, where she where she talks about interpolation when a newborn is is born mm. and the doctor or the parents are like, that's a girl. Yeah. Right. So she, her she is subjected to that identity mm. from the moment that she is born and then for the rest of her life. Rather than expressing her individuality, um, she basically like grows into that role that she's been assigned to.
1: Mm.
0: But it's that it, the 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 crucial point is it's it's that in, it's intersubjective. It's mm. someone saying, "Well, that that is a girl," yeah, or that or that is a boy, yeah. Right? Um, and then that is sort of consigned onto them. And you're never so as you were saying, you're never not a subject. You're always subjected to ideology because of how pervasive it is. Mm.
1: That's that's a very interesting point. We should read Butler sometime and do a pod on him.
0: Yeah, I do want to. I do want to read um, Judith Butler and other feminist thinkers because it's um, was conspicuously absent from my philosophy degree.
1: Yeah, no, I'm exactly the same. I don't think I ever was given a, a feminist philosophy reading uh, in my whole degree,
0: which is pretty funny when you consider like you know what all the hysterical right wingers. Say about, like, oh, you know, these students, they're being taught all these radical left wing things. Like, no, nah, like, I did a philosophy degree and I learned Locke, Rousseau, Hobbes, um, didn't learn Marx, certainly didn't learn any feminist thinkers. You know, it was basically just like a who's who of, of liberalism. Mm. Uh, how amazing is liberalism? <laughs> so, you know. It's total bullshit that, like, <laughs> universities are these, like, left-wing, left-wing machines. Mm. Yeah,
1: no, it's I, – I feel like, in a sense, like, socially, in terms of, like, social politics, they are usually very left-wing, but in terms of, like, their material politics, they just perpetuate the system.
0: Oh yeah, I mean this is a whole podcast in itself, right? Like yeah. the reason why it's easier for corporations to be socially progressive but economically status quo.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, because social progressivism, even though it's good, I agree with it,
1: doesn't it doesn't threaten the system. You might say it acts as a re- ideological reinforcement.
0: Well, exactly. You know, yeah. it's 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 not a problem uh, that we have these CEOs and bankers with too much power. It's just a problem that they're all men. Yeah. Right. Um, It's a way of
1: kind of like the steam, like the pressure that the system creates getting reinforced, getting like released in such a way that it reinforces the system itself.
0: Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. It's like like a safety valve. Yeah. You got to let off a bit of steam. So these people feel like, you know, they're being conceded to and we will concede to them on like the socially progressive stuff. Because really their power, I mean, it's just like Marxism 101, right? Their power derives from the material stuff. Mm. Uh, It derives from like the economic base, um, doesn't derive from anything else. So Mm. we can concede to you on, um, you know, having gender quotas, racial quotas, um, greater diversity, and all these things are great and wonderful, um, but the reason why they get conceded to so readily in some sectors But things like a wealth tax or higher taxes on the rich don't get accepted, is because the latter would actually threaten the source of their power, and Mm. that is economics.
1: Yeah, no, one hundred percent. Well, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of going through his uh, his discussion of ideology. Was there anything that we missed out on? Because I've
0: look, um, I mean, we hit the interpolation.
1: Um, I think we, we we got the
0: the broad outlines of of Elthusa pretty well across. I mean, if we didn't, please feel free to let us know. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, is there anything you wanted to add?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to have a dis- short discussion about. Well, we've heard all this about ideology, about how it's created, about how it's reproduced, about how pervasive it is, but the question remains. What next? Mm. What, what do we do with this information?
0: What is to be done,
1: <laughs> as uh, John Lennon once said. <laughs> I mean, uh, Althusser was not just a Marxist. He was a Marxist-Leninist, so I'm sure he'd... Yeah, right. love- oh, he, loved, he loved the Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel like what Althusser would say, uh, what we have to do next is, well, we have to fight a class struggle. Because even though the proletariat, the workers, are subject to this ideological system, their material interests are completely opposite to the running of this system. And maybe we would, we would you know, we would still be in ideology if we moved to say a socialist society. But I think Althusser would say well, that is a far preferable ideology to be in. I, I don't think yeah, he's. Yeah. I don't think he. It's easy to hear like he's talk about ideology and think it's like this completely uh, malicious force. But Mm. I think he's, he describes it in a neutral way. It's malicious in capitalism. I don't think he thinks it's malicious as such.
0: I completely agree with that. And then there's there's always this really easy way to just sort of disregard critical thinkers and left-wing thinkers by saying, well, uh, that's always going to be the case um you know they're, they're not actually saying anything that profound um and the what well you, what you just said is like the perfect retort to that it's like yeah i mean he's not saying that this is a conspiracy he, he he's not saying that there are people in a back room um devising the ideological conditions of society right because everyone accepts it and then it works to to reinforce the status quo and you know to a certain extent right like you sort of need this to a degree. I mean, yeah. you can't have just like total chaos. You need some form of social conditioning. Mm-hmm. Um, but social conditioning in the service of what? Is it going to yeah. be social? Are you going to be socially conditioned to live your life as a cog in a machine, or are you going to be socially conditioned to help others and to try and create a society full of human flourishing? Yeah, and I think the way that you said it of like, well, yeah, ideology is pernicious in capitalism. Um, but if we moved to a socialist system, and that started to perpetuate itself, I mean that's definitely an improvement.
1: Mm. Well, I don't think we can top that. Um, do you want to end it there? <laughs> I mean, it only took three episodes for my political
0: uh, <laughs> political <laughs> views to be made so explicit. Um, yeah, I mean, let's 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 wrap it up. Let's wrap it up there. Our mm. formal discussion of of Alfie's what what do we want to discuss next? Where are we going from here? Let's
1: let's sate the appetites of uh, <laughs> of our listeners. Um, that's a very good question that I don't know the answer to. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have anything in mind? Because like I'm open to suggestions. I, I didn't have anything that I was like I want to do this next. We have to. Like,
0: yeah, I mean, I would like to do like three or four episodes slightly different to the structures of these ones where we discuss yeah. singular texts. Like I want to do a, uh, what is liberalism? Mm-hmm. What is Marxism? Yeah. Maybe what is conservatism? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I think that's a very misunderstood ideology. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. I think that would be useful for people. Um, and sort mm-hmm. of a, once they listen to those things, then everything else that we discuss will make a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Um there is a book that I really will, that I will read in the next month or so, um, Communitarianism and its Critics by Daniel A. Bell, mm-hmm. um, which is a dialogue form, which should be interesting, of him discussing what is communitarianism. Um, so we could potentially do an episode on that. But yeah, I think the what is episodes would be would be useful to a lot of people.
1: Yeah. All right. Sounds great. Everybody, audience, our what is series is going to be coming up next.
0: What's the is it the first one? What is liberalism? Yep, yeah, let's do it. All right, sweet. Let's let's do it. All right. See ya. Peace.